Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well. The Think Curiously podcast is kind of back, I guess. I went in a bit of a sabbatical since August time and this is kind of, uh, what could you call this? I guess this is the trial, a trial run at what I perceive to be the growth of the Think Curiously podcast. So what's going to be next for the Nick, for Think Curiously podcast is going to be a series that I'm calling Life Lessons from the Sideline and I'm looking at life lessons from all different sporting backgrounds, from coaches, from athletes. I'll be looking at some documentaries that are on Netflix and Amazon, talking about those, trying to relate those to some kind of research and my own personal experience, as well as some of the books that I've read uh, from some of the sporting heroes in basketball and football, obviously, and other sports as well. But just trying to get to real bare bones of, of what the life lessons are that these athletes and these coaches have been sort of spreading throughout their careers or even what they've learned, sorry, and then what they've been spreading to others outside of their career to try and give us an insight into how what what they think and how they perceive their sport and how they perceive lessons they've learned in their sport. One of those books that I recently came across was The Mamba Mentality by Kobe Bryant. Obviously, this was published uh, before his death, but the book is a book that highlights, in his own words, his career from the very start to where it ended up. There's a lot of pictures in the book. Um, normally pictures in a book, they don't really bring to life or they don't do the, the book that much justice because you tend to be more focused on the pictures than you are the information in the words on the pages. But this book does a really good job of combining together what the words are saying with the pictures on the on the page. So it's a really good catalogue of his career, but it also allows the reader to get an insight into who Kobe Bryant was and essentially what his life lessons were. When I first opened the book, I think I read about 50 or 60 pages in and the first go was completely enthralled by it. But it was two or three paragraphs on page 22 that really sparked this idea, this curiosity of, could I potentially make a podcast episode out of this? Could we talk about it? Could we decipher it? Could we try and bring it to a wider audience? And I guess that's what this podcast episode actually is. So the next quote that I'm going to read you, the next sort of two paragraphs, I should say, of the quote that I'm going to read you, is from page 22 of the book and it starts off saying when it came to basketball I had no fear what I mean by this is if I wanted to implement something new into my game I'd see it and try and incorporate it immediately I wasn't scared of missing looking bad or being embarrassed that's because I always kept the end result the long game in my mind I was always focused on the fact that I had to try something to get it and once I got it I'd have another tool to add to my arsenal. If the price was a lot of hard work and a few missed shots, I was okay with that. He continues, As a kid, I would work tirelessly on adding elements to my game. I would see something I liked in a person or on film, go practice it immediately, practice it more and more day after day, and then go out and use it. By the time I reached the league, I had a short learning curve. I could see something, download it, and have it down. So when I first read that, it struck with me a number of different things. A few questions really popped into my head. And I have, again, I always use my own coaching experiences on this. Um, and I've taken a new, group of coach, a new group of players on this year. But not just those group of players, but the group of players I've had probably in the last three to four years, maybe stretched into five years. There's always been questions in my mind whether they understand the importance of individual responsibility and whether they reflect at all. And I've got this opinion that 
there's a lot of players that are playing the game today, youth level, who play the game, but have never watched the game. So they don't watch as much football as I or my my friends used to watch when we were younger. They don't seem to talk about the game in the same way. It's all computerized through FIFA and FIFA points, and he's got this amount of points for shooting and dribbling. And but then if you want, you ask them, did you watch the Ipswich game, uh, Charlton game, for example, at the weekend, or did you see the highlights? They would look at you as if you've got two heads. So they wouldn't really know what's going on. Most of them, anyway, that's for, for that case. So when I read this book and when I read those points of where he would, where, where Kobe Bryant would pra- see something, practice it, add it to his game that he liked to try and make himself better and almost to try and copy what his icons and his, his heroes were doing and, and almost re- not reinvent the wheel, but add it to his game to make it better. I always thought to myself, well, do, do, do players do that now? Do youth players actually sit and do they study the game or do they just come and play uh, twice a week when they train and then a Saturday and then they go play FIFA? Do they actually watch the game itself? But a Apart from that, there was three other questions that came to mind. That is, how often do players wait on the coach to correct them or help them? Like Kobe Bryant went and seen something on film or watched a game and was able to then pick out what he wanted to add to his game. He didn't need a coach for that. He went and done that himself. How many players today, youth players, will get off their own, go off their own bat and do that? Very little, I'd imagine. I haven't come across that very many. How many players watch other players take parts that they like, practice it, perfect it, and add it to their game. So you see a lot of players who will, a lot of youth players who will maybe try and mimic Ronaldo's run-up or they will, to free kick, or they'll try and mimic a type of strike or a pass that a certain player plays, but will they actually study how they do it? Will they actually go and look at it, practice it, feel at it, make it better next time and keep going with that process, or will they try it once and think it's too hard and forget about it? And then how many of them drive for constant improvement. So I guess what this podcast episode is, is for me to try and not answer those three questions, but try and put them in a context where it allows you guys to see where I'm coming from, see where my mind was at when I was reading that book. Uh, And then also depict, or not depict, I should say, take apart and delve into uh, those quotes at the very start of the book that I read about Kobe Bryant's sort of drive to improve his, his watching of the game. He said as well that he likes to practice hard and if it means missing a few shots then and feeling he was okay with that what is our attitudes to failure what are our players attitudes to failure and how can we potentially go about changing that because as i've said i often see youth footballers who don't really have a drive for self-improvement but i also see them a number of them recently who can be completely derailed by failure they see teammates sometimes as being superior to them so what's the point in trying And in turn, they then devalue their own abilities. So they have this perception that because somebody else is better than them, then there's no point working hard because no matter how hard they work, they'll never get there. And I see this quite a bit and I hear this in language and I I see it whenever they're on the pitch. And I hear that when, when they're speaking together in the changing rooms or whenever I'm having conversations with them. But unlike Kobe, who actually embraced failure, he studied it and he learned from it. An increasing, I believe, an increasing amount of youth players, they accept it. Or, more often than not, they'll get into the car after training or after practice. They'll speak to their dad, their mum, or whoever's driving them home. And the problems that they encountered in the training session of the game, they won't be their problems. They will be because it was the referee's fault, because it was the coach's fault, because the teammate didn't pass the ball at the right time, because the pitch was too wet, the ball was too bouncy, the boots weren't tied enough, the boots are too small. 
there'll always be an excuse other than themselves. And I think that we are now starting to see a group or a generation of youth players coming through who find it very, very easy to blame others and blame other things outside their perceived control in order to make themselves feel comfortable knowing that, oh, well, I done everything I could do, so it must be somebody else's fault. So they don't really have that that awareness of self-reflection or even how important self-reflection could be. They don't sort of think to themselves, well, what if I, what could I have done better there? And interestingly enough, I want to take it back to Christmas 2021. It's the morning after the night before. I've had a few drinks. Uh, I'm lying in bed. I look at my book cabinet. I'm trying to muster up the energy to read. I'd bought a number of books that week or the week before, and I hadn't had a chance to read them. So I was lying thinking, well, I need to do something. I want to get out of bed. I'll try and read. And I bought a a number of the books I bought. One of the books was um, a book called Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. And it's by Admiral William H. McRaven. He's a former U.S. Navy SEAL. You might have heard of him because a video that he was part of in 2014 completely blew up social media and blew up the internet. has over 40 or 50 million views now on YouTube. It was his commencement speech at the University of Texas, as I said, in 2014. And in the video, he's impeccably dressed in his white Navy SEAL dress uniform as he stood behind the lectern and gave a speech to the graduates. And the speech was his tips for life. It was his tips for how could you change the world. And one of those was, don't be afraid of the circus. And that's a story about failure. And as he sees it, if failure is viewed appropriately, it can help propel you further. Have a listen as Admiral McRaven tells a story of failing below the standards of Navy SEAL training as he and his swim partner come in last in the open water swims and they don't quite make the time that's needed in order to pass through to the next stage. If you fail to meet those times, those standards, your name was posted on a list. And at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant that for that day, you didn't measure up. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting, an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. Interestingly, what you don't hear is that during training, both McRaven and his swim partner repeatedly failed. But each time they failed, they failed better. They got a better score. Their, better, their time was better across the open water swims and they started to very slowly climb that leaderboard. So they would go swim. They wouldn't quite reach the time. They'd have to go two hours of circus the next day or the same day, I should say. They would do their flutter kicks and everything else they had to do. And then they'd go back out the next day. They'd feel again, but a little bit better this time, but still have to do the circus for two hours that day. 
See, during the circus, as I mentioned, they're required to perform a grueling routine of push-ups, press-ups, and these flutter kicks. The flutter kicks required them to lie flat on their back with their hands behind their head and in a kicking motion without bending their knees, raise one leg, then the other on the count of the drill sergeant. In their final swim, they blitzed the field. They arrived first in the shoreline, they turned around, and they couldn't see any other swimming partners in sight. That's how far ahead of the field they were. And they were eventually inducted into the Navy SEALs. Admiral McRaven credits those extra flutter kicks as the reason that he finally, him and his partner, finally succeeded. Of course, I'm not for a second suggesting that we have to do some kind of Navy SEAL training for youth footballers in order to try and build mental resilience or to try and get them to see failure as as something that can be used for a positive. And saying that, if you look at social media across some of the local clubs over the summertime when pre-season kicks in and they're all up and down sand dunes in Port Stewart Strand, I'd argue that that uh, has very little relevance to football, but that's a different argument for a different day. But what I am actually suggesting is that maybe those who succeed, succeed because of the quality of the additional practice that they do and the resilience that that then builds. I've used this story a number of times in different podcasts before, but I think it's pretty relevant to the point I'm trying to make. A few years ago, when I was working for the IFA, I was fortunate enough to work with some of the best coaches in the country. And on one particular training session, we were training on the far side of the pitch where there was a, a pitch it was divided into two, three sections, sorry. And one of the sections was close to the entrance. And I was walking through that, going towards my part of the pitch. And there was a coach there speaking to his players. And he had them almost like in a horseshoe shape. And he was in the middle of the two outside lines, almost connecting them. And every single player in the group was fixated on this coach. And as I walked past in a very slow, calm and methodical way, he asked the players, what's the difference between wanting and needing? There's a few mumbles in the crowd, a few inaudible moans and groans, but no real substance to any answer. And after all of those moans and groans had kind of died down, he left it a few seconds. And he looked up and he asked the group, do you need to breathe or do you want to breathe? And of course, all of the group, most of them in harmony, said, well, we need to breathe. And then the coach turned around and said, ah, he says, when it comes to football, do you need to play football or do you want to play football? Because if you want to play football, then that means you can do without it. But if you need to play football, just like that last breath, you will do anything to get it. And that's the difference between wanting and needing. Now, I don't know how the players felt after that speech, but I definitely walked away with an extra spring on my step and it's stuck with me ever since because I think it's a perfect analogy for anyone to understand the difference between wanting and needing and that to get to the very top, to be the very best of what you want to achieve, that really is what it comes down to. Is Do you want it or do you need it? Because if you want it, you can do without it. I mean, I had a conversation with him afterwards and he kind of said, well, look at it a different way. Do you want the bar of chocolate or do you need a bar of chocolate? You don't need a bar of chocolate. You want it, right? So you can do without it. So it's a very, I think it's a very easy analogy to give to players and for you to understand and be able to translate that message across to the players. So I guess what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to sum up everything and bring it all together. And so far I've mentioned Kobe Bryant's desire to be the best and how he accepts failure and how he learns from it. How Admiral McRaven 
making those extra flutter kicks, even though they were three punishment, seemed something that was allowed to propel him towards victory. And to the coach explaining the difference between wanting and needing, it's very clear to me that all of that comes under the banner of mindset. So then it's natural to ask, well, what is it then about mindset? How does it make the difference between being a success and being a failure? And to do that, I want to introduce you to 10-year-old Carson Byblow. He's a student of the Anglo-American school of Sofia in Bulgaria. He was born in Belgrade, Serbia, and Carson loves to play football, basketball, and do what all kids do, hang out with their, fa- their friends and their family. And he wrote this talk about growth and fixed mindsets because, believe it or not, at 10 years old, this is something that he experienced. The talk is called The Mindset of a Champion. Michael Jordan has said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots, lost almost 300 games, and 26 times I've been trusted to make the game-winning shot and missed. I fail over and over and over again, and that is why I succeed. Michael Jordan is one of the most famous basketball players in the world, though he was not always a star. He didn't make his high school basketball team because he was too short and wasn't good enough. He could have quit. Bun said he had the mindset to continue and get better. He was at practicing each day before most people were even out of bed. And because of this, he not only made the team the following year, but he went on to become the greatest player of all time and a true champion. The question that comes to our mind is can we all learn to have a mindset of a champion? A mindset is a word describing how we think. There are two types of mindsets. One, a growth mindset, and two, a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is when somebody believes they can learn to be good and they can learn to get better. They are not afraid of challenges. They continue when things get hard. They know that they have put effort into learn and they learn from criticism. They are also inspired by people who do well. Michael Jordan has this trait, though another person with a growth mindset is The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. He was cut from the Canadian Football League early on in his career. He could have quit. Bun said he worked very hard, faced many challenges, and is now a super, super famous movie star, one of my favorite. Did you know that coaches and professional scouts look for athletes who don't just have skill? They want someone who wants to learn, who is coachable, and will give 100% effort and in practices. They want someone with a growth mindset. What they don't want is somebody who thinks they are already good enough, they don't need to learn, and are not coachable. These people have a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset is the opposite of a growth. These people either think they're born good or born not so good. They cannot learn. They are afraid of challenges. They give up and get defensive easily. They feel criticized when given feedback and are threatened by people who do well. Which mindset do you think I have? Well, let me tell you a story. Reading has always been hard for me, and even now I still find it challenging. From kindergarten to fourth grade, I was always a bit below grade level in reading. So each night, I read aloud to my parents to try to get better. This was always the worst part of my day. Whenever I was reading, I would of course make mistakes, misread words, say words that weren't there, miss words that were there, and miss punctuation. Normal. But one of my mom 
or dad tried to correct me, I'd get upset. I told them that they were wrong and sometimes even have a meltdown. This happened from my friends and teachers and with other subjects and activities too. I thought that I should know how to do everything already. And if I didn't, I would get upset. I thought that what my teachers were teaching should come to me easy. Well, guess what? Some of the things I was learning or reading were not easy. I would get upset. Negative thoughts came into my mind. You suck. You can't do anything. This should be so easy. Suddenly, I felt tears coming down my face in front of my friends and teachers too. In my hand, saying, no, 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 please, no. I could no longer control my emotions. This is where the real problem begins. You see, I lose control of my emotions. I stop listening and I stop thinking. I become difficult to those around me. And when I finally get through it, I am very tired. This is not healthy and it's not the person I want to be. I want to know why I was feeling this way and why my emotions were so strong. Well, this year, in fifth grade, was the first year I was able to answer these questions. I learned what a growth and fixed mindset are. I'm learning how to change my fixed mindset into a growth mindset and have a mindset of a champion. I believe we can have both of these mindsets, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. I believe this because I have both. I have a growth mindset with things like soccer, basketball, change, and learning new languages. I also believe we can change our fixed mindset into a growth mindset and have a mindset of a champion. Well, maybe not a champion like Michael Jordan, but a champion in our own way. We may just need a little help to do this. My dad and I read this book called Mindsets, written by Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is a professor and professional psychologist who researched and came up with the idea of a growth and fixed mindset. Her book told me that I was not the only one as a fixed mindset from time to time. However, the best advice I ever got was from my teacher and school counselor. Their advice was a one little three letter word. This word was yet. They told me always put the word yet at the end of my sentence. I can't do it. I can't do it yet. I don't understand. I don't understand yet. The word yet makes me feel I just need to put a little more effort in before I understand it. I still struggle with a fixed mindset from time to time. However, I n now know why I get frustrated and upset. For any of you out there who may have a fixed mindset from time to time, please know that I am proof that you can beat it. Right in this talk, I struggled the whole time, though every day I've gotten a little better than the day before. This is why I can say I'm winning, because I'm here in front of you now today. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that remarkably inspiring. A story told not by an adult. There's no research. There's no doctor titles. There's no school teacher with a tie and a chalkboard or a presentation saying what is mindset, what is fixed and what is, what is growth mindset. This is a child, the experience of a child, the lived through experiences of a child who has learned to reflect on their thoughts and their actions and their perceptions. If he can do it, there's absolutely no reason why we as coaches can't do it and then we, why we can't then encourage our players to do the same. Now, I guess my original point at the very start of this was that I felt, or I still do feel, that there's a generational issue in youth football and possibly across all sports 
that there's an ever-increasing number of players that have an inability to view failure as a learning opportunity. And that rather than embracing the lessons that could be learnt, instead they don't challenge themselves, they stay inside their comfort and they fail to self-reflect. In effect, there's more who display characteristics of a fixed mindset as opposed to that of a growth mindset. In the stories that I've presented and the research that we've discussed, I feel that we are failing our youth players. As I said, not just football, but across all sports. There's a conversation, I believe, that needs to be had among youth coaches about how we can develop more resilient players. Players who accept risk, who will take the shot even when all signs point towards failure. Players who have a champion mindset. 